0: Uh, It's absolutely a pleasure for me to actually be here again for another dialogue called the Thinker's Dialogue, which you know is a weekly interaction that we do with the foremost experts across the world, uh, wherein we talk about their life's work and gain knowledge from their expertise and perspectives. So today we have a very special guest. Uh, We have Mr. Arun Mayra. Uh, In fact, uh, he's a person who does not really need any introduction. Uh, But then uh, just just for people who are going to be joining from outside, uh, he has been a member of the Planning Commission. Uh, and that, that's uh, one of the most important bodies that was existing in, under the previous uh, government. Now it has actually been re questioned to Niti Ayo, but it was the apex planning body for the government of India. Uh, so he's worked closely with the, the then Prime Minister, Dr. Manmohan Singh, for many, many years. Uh, and then, of course, uh, he's, been, he's worked with the Tatars. He has been part of, uh, or he's been Board of Trustees with Helpage. Uh, he's been uh, a part of the National Innovation Council, and uh, and his accolades just span a lot of uh, things. So if I start speaking about his uh, work, then it'll actually just take a whole day for me to really talk about it. But the most important being that he's written a tremendous number of books. Uh, in fact, uh, some of them are uh, Aspirational Leadership in India and Beyond. Uh, then, of course, Airplane While Flying, Reforming Institutions, and Transforming Capitalism. So I felt that uh, there is no person better than Dr. Naira. Uh, or Mr. Aaron Mayra, who, who can actually talk about the whole idea of capitalism and how it has to be transformed given the kind of conditions that we're actually living in, or given the kind of situation that we are in. And uh, if, you, if you really uh, look at uh, uh, Mr. Meira as well, in fact, my personal association with him, I've known him for the last, I think, 10 years. Uh, but as uh, not, uh, I think, on a distant way, in fact, we have dabbled into some thoughts off and on. But I, he's a person that I respect quite a bit. Uh, and I, I feel that if I'm able to write like him, that would be uh, one accomplishment uh, that I would have actually made in my life. So that, that's uh, where it is. So I look up to him in many, many ways. You might not realize it, uh, but then uh, I think uh, one person that I would like to emulate in many ways in my life. Uh, so Mr. Mayra, thanks a lot for joining us today and being with us.
1: Thank you, Amit. Um, thank you, Amit. You know I have great respect Uh, for your thoughts and your work. And you said, yes, you and I have connected a little bit, perhaps, in the last 10 years, but all our connections have been rather intense. They've been about very important subjects where you have been um, uh, challenging thinking, my thinking, when I was in the Planning Commission, and offering uh, help to straighten it out, as it were, (laughs) The, the thinking about policy. And so I've been following you, too. I've been following you, too. And it's a privilege to be with you here today to talk about what I believe is a the most important subject that uh, leaders of societies and economies everywhere in the world uh, need to talk about. So thank you for inviting me for that discussion.
0: Mr. Mayra, thank you. We'll just go uh, dive deep into the conversation. Let's, let's go into the conversation. So, Mr. Mayra, uh, if you really look at the world today, it has gone through a lot of turmoil and a lot of uh, changes. Uh, especially in the last half a decade. The last five years have been fairly tumultuous, uh, and especially the last 12 months. They have, they've actually been uh, like one of the most uh, trying times for the world. In fact, we similar kind of a time was seen in 1918 to what we are seeing today. Uh, and then I'm sure this must have affected you personally as well, the whole COVID crisis in many, many ways. So how, how do you really look at this time uh, that we are going through and the challenges that we have faced as a world?
1: Yes, thank you. Uh, You know, Amit, uh, you you mentioned the last year when it was very obvious that the world um, was in a very different place and uh, unusual things were happening to everybody all over the world during the last year. But you went in and said that in the previous five years, um, not everybody, but yes, you were and and very thoughtful people like yourself were observing that we can't carry on the way we are. And it was uh, actually after the the financial crisis of 2008, so that's going back already 10 years, when economists began to say, we need to think of a new normal. And this became the sort of word, a slogan that was used about uh, the world is going to be in a new normal. But I don't think hardcore economists were able to describe what that new normal should look like. And of course, the two questions, what it would look like, but then there's an aspirational question about what should it look like. And I think in this last one year, this crisis of aspiration has hit us, that we can't carry on the way we are. And we'll have to rethink all the ideologies and the philosophies with which we've been guiding the progress of the world. And uh, so in that regard, uh, you know, capitalism, which is what uh, you told me you want to talk about and you asked the question already. Um, Yes, so carry on Amit. I really want to have this conversation with you.
0: but then of course, like, just to understand from your point of view, like when you're saying uh, there has been a lot of change in ideologies, philosophies, how things were moving, but one of the ideologies of the world has been capitalism. And how, would you, how do you really define that idea?
1: You know, um, I um, talk when I, I discuss and talk and I write and you read my books too. I get asked by, by many people, my friends, my peers, are you a socialist? And I say, you see, no, I say, I'm a capitalist. They feel I don't sound like one. I don't talk like one. So who is a capitalist and who is a socialist? Okay, now Bernie Sanders in the US, yes, he's been described in the US to by his opponents to put him down. They say, well, he's a socialist. He might bring socialism into the United States. Here in our country, we had introduced the word socialism into our constitution, that we'll be a, a secular socialist uh, country. And there are people today in the government, as you know, in the in the parliament, who are saying we should delete that word. India is not a socialist country. Hmm? So you have to think about uh, what is socialism and what is capitalism. And I say this, a capitalist is the person who sees the world from the perspective of capital, And a socialist sees the world from the perspective of society. That's the fundamental difference between the two. And the time has come for the world to reconnect capitalism with society. So that amalgam is going to be a new capitalism.
0: You know, what you're saying is so important uh, because for a fundamental uh, view that you have to bring social objectives and economic objectives together, because if you really don't bring them together, there is going to be a lot of turmoil or there could be a crisis of sorts. So how do you think we can bridge this gap or how we can actually bring these two objectives together? Because socialism in in its true form probably has its own set of challenges. Capitalism in its true form can create many challenges as well. So how do you bring these two uh, thoughts together?
1: You know, yes, uh, the the how is going to be spurred by a crisis. As I said, don't waste a good crisis. And we need a crisis In our minds, a crisis which says that the thoughts and ideas that I have cannot help us or me to achieve what I really aspire for you remember Einstein who said, you can't solve the intractable problems that you're facing with the same thinking which might very well have created the problems. So here we are this crisis right now which in the last year, as you said, uh, really woke people up and to say we can't carry on like this the whole world is uh, very vulnerable. Even the rich countries are very vulnerable. The so-called capitalist countries are are very vulnerable. So, what is it that uh, has caused this alarm? So, let's look at it. Let me share some numbers with you. And I'll I'll talk about India first and then generalize uh, to the world. You know, we, India, have become a more capitalist country. After 1991, we were before that declared to be a socialist country. Hmm? How is India doing? A recent ranking of India that was gathered together by the Mint newspaper on various indicators from various international, credible international surveys. Firstly, environmental degradation, which is something the whole world is worrying about, you know, climate change, the deterioration of the quality of the air and the water and the soils and so on, environmental degradation. How is India doing? India's ranked, on a very credible survey, 179 out of 180 countries in air quality. How is India doing on water quality? 120 out of 122 countries in the world which are on that survey. Now, these are fundamental things that human beings need. Air to breathe and water to drink. You die without these. And this is how badly we are doing as an economy and a society. Amongst the worst in the world. On the other side, and by the way, I might add another one which we'll come into a little more, is about poverty and hunger. India ranked uh, 94 out of 107 countries on a a very credible global survey about uh, hunger, 94 out of 107 countries. Now look at the other progress we are making though. On the other hand, yes, our GDP had been growing for for many years quite well, second fastest growing economy in the world after China and the fastest growing democratic economy in the world uh, and so on. In the last seven, eight years, and you know this uh, because you also helped, and so have I, India has climbed up on the ease of doing business rankings so much. How many positions? 79 positions. (laughs) We've become 63rd out of 190 countries in 2019, uh, until of course the World Bank suspended its measurements because people pointed out there were flaws in it. And and I can talk about that, but let's keep that aside. We've been doing very well on ease of doing business but doing so poorly on environmental situations uh, and and environmental conditions. Let's talk of inequality, okay? Before 1991, as I mentioned earlier, uh, we were considered to be socialist and therefore the big reforms were to push India to be more capitalist after 1991. Here are survey uh, results which Jeffrey, uh, Christopher Jaffer of Science Po has published this morning in Mint again. Um, And he's a credible person, you know, Because the numbers need to be looked at, hmm? seriously. Consumption inequality. Before 1991, the top 10%, the difference, the bottom 10% of the people and the top 10% was this. The top 10% consumed 33%. hmm? Whereas today it's 40%. So it's gone up in terms of consumption inequality, wealth inequality in India. The top 10% before 1991 controlled 51.6% of India's wealth. In 2012, when that survey, uh, that instrument was last used, it was 63%. And during the pandemic, the last year, this alarming year, Oxfam, whose report has just been published a couple of days ago, pointed out that the wealth of billionaires, this is all around the world, increased by 3.9 trillion (laughs) dollars. So they got very wealthy, enormously wealthy during the pandemic, whereas the people living in poverty, as uh, Oxfam is estimating, would have increased by somewhere between 200 million to 500 million people in the world. Now we can talk about the numbers in India also which have also been separately published about how much richer Indian billionaires have become during this time and we know during the pandemic what we saw the loss of incomes and livelihoods for a couple of hundred million people at least if not very many, many, many more than that. So this is what has happened because of the pattern of our growth. So it's not just absolute GDP growth that matters, it's the quality and the pattern of the growth that matters. And so what causes the pattern of growth? It's your ideologies about how we should grow and what we should be wanting to grow. We want to grow wealth, as we say, but whose wealth? We say if the wealth creators don't make more wealth, they'll have no incentive to invest more and to grow more wealth. So we come back to the ease of doing business and the metrics, which are really looking at the ease of investors being able to do business and to you know make reasonable or high profits for themselves so here i am so when i say this you might also say hey but you're sounding anti-capitalist hmm? you're sounding rather anti-wealth and anti-capitalist and i want to discuss that with you
0: no, sir, i don't think you're anti-capitalist or whatever but i think this is where we are bringing to the fore one of the most important issues that mankind faces in fact, to your point, you know, like the most alarming thing is that we are right now sitting in the middle of the sixth mass exti- mass extinction, and if we don't really get the situation right for, say, water and air, we might actually be talking about a defunct race in less than ten thousand years. Uh, of course, in our time frame, it might just not matter because we're going to live for, say, 70, 80, or whatever be the time frame or time line. But there are going to be severe issues for mankind per se or humankind per se. But just to your point you know like when you talk about water quality and air quality why is it that we are not even getting worried about it why is it that people are not pushing forward that this is so important because if i just look at these numbers we we are expecting that 600 million people are going to be without water uh, in the next 30 years in india uh, and it's going to be a huge problem in the world but we are not even talking about it
1: You know, um, uh, Amit, uh, when I came back uh, to India, I was away for 10, 11 years. I left in 1989. I I worked very hard and I was enjoying, actually, my work during the so-called socialist era in India. uh, Things were tough uh, in terms of lack of infrastructure as well as in uh, uh, very bureaucratic government regulations. But there was a spirit that uh, what we were doing was for the sake of everybody in the country. Yeah, and Tata's I was with and it was, you know, as J.R.D. would say, first think about what's good for India, and then think about what's good for our business for Tata's. And if you do what is good for India, it will turn out to be good for Tata's. At that time, I I took a break, and I went to the U.S., I left in in 1989, 1991, we had our reforms. I came back uh, in the year 2000, and when I came back, I found quite a different India, quite a different India. And I came back here and began to read instead of the New York Times, which I was reading up there and the Wall Street Journal picked up our Times of India, which was our paper. And Lakshman, R.K. Lakshman's cartoons used to be there every morning on the first page. And his cartoon was a common man's view. The common man's view. And I recollect these two cartoons very well because I've used them with his permission on a book I wrote then about remaking India. One country with one destiny. And the first cartoon was this one which said there was, they showed, there was some minister maybe uh, in a helicopter who's landed in some rural area in India and these little hungry villagers in their dhoti surrounding him with their folded hands and he's berating them. He said, what's this? We've given you cell phones and you keep asking for drinking water. You know what our priorities have become we are measuring our progress but oh it used to be so difficult to get a phone in india it took seven years today you can get a phone anytime this was a marker of progress and there were people telling us then too that we are running out of water here but we weren't listening to them we felt that they're backward people they don't have the right aspirations. they should be aspiring for all the good stuff which the rest of the world has the second cartoon which i'm going to recall for you is we're showing two beggars at the bottom of the Bombay Stock Exchange. And uh, they see some big stockbrokers in their dhotis and their caps coming down, laughing away at the top of the stairs. And one beggar says to the other, Oh, the Sensex must have gone up. Now life is going to be very good for us. You know, this whole linkage, thinking that if the stock market goes up, everybody's life is improved. And we keep now even saying, The economy must be doing all right, because look how much the Sensex has gone up. There's no direct linkage in the economy between the stock market and the real economy. There is no trickle down, which is so direct. And in India, where less than 3% of the people have any investment in the stock market directly or even indirectly through mutual funds, the stock market going up doesn't benefit them at all. They've got to have direct benefits, which provide them, like we're talking, food, water, jobs, incomes in their lives here and now.
0: So, Mr. Meira, you are hinting at something very important, and that is that our metric for measurement itself just got horribly wrong, or we got it horribly wrong. In fact, when you are talking about cell phone penetration as a metric, vis-a-vis, say, uh, water availability, sanitation, or whatever, where do you think we went wrong, or uh, how how do you think, or was it something like juxtaposition by corporations or people around us or whatever? Where, where did we just uh, lose this track that all these aspects are so important?
1: I say here it's economics, economics, and economists, and business. Okay, I'm going to put the two together because business is the engine of capitalism. And economics provides business a case, an economic case. So here economics has got so hung up on GDP as being a good measure of the health of an economy. Okay, They even claim it also measures the health of a society. But certainly they do claim it measures the health of an economy. And getting so hung up on that one measure has made us lose sight of the many other things that are going on inside an economy, okay? Like we said, Indian GDP was going up, but India's water quality, air quality was deteriorating. Are we measuring that? No. So we do need scorecards for economies which are broader than a single number of just GDP. However, I must say this to you. Whenever I would say, let's put the rate of poverty removal as a measure. Let's put the improvement and certainly put the prevention or deterioration of the environment as a measure. I'm dismissed to say we first must have growth before we can redistribute it. First increase the pie before we can share it. Quick answer is this. And I say, look, what growth in growth of what? If we have growth of say food being growing and people having access to it, if we have growth in sustainable economies, then there's nothing to share afterwards. But you've got a model and we should say, strip out all this. Yes, misuse all of this, grow something else, which is, as we're saying, the wealth in the hands of those people who invested money, grow that. Then they will sort of share that willingly, hopefully with the rest. It's a wrong model. The people have to be participants in the growth. Their incomes must grow and counting that up will tell us whether we are equitably growing the economy. And so these more metrics have to be put, certainly some on the social and inclusion side and many more on the environmental side, along with the pure economic numbers. We need a balanced scorecard with at least these three sets of numbers in them. And there's a fourth one, which I would say is the quality of justice the quality of feeling of being included and listened to in the society, which is a governance one. And therefore in business also we're talking about these four ESOG uh, frameworks to, to talk about measurements. But again, I'm pointing out to you, when I say, please let's have a balanced one, there are people from economics who say, don't complicate matters. It's hard enough to get the economy to grow. You want to worry about all those things. First, let's grow this. Then we'll think about the other things. You see, this is where conceptually
0: we're getting it wrong. Yes, sir, Mr. mehra you know, like, these are very two important schools of thought. Like, one is, of course, what uh, Professor Amartya Sen has been talking about or what Joe Stiglitz has been talking about vis-a-vis the Jagdish Bhagwati uh, school of um, thought. Uh, and I I do lean towards what uh, Professor Sen has actually been saying in terms of that we need to have far deeper measures of looking at things. Uh, but then when you say conceptually people are just not understanding it what what is driving that uh, what I call conceptual weakness or uh, lack of depth in this conversation because if people can understand that if we don't get these right if inequality is going to be there it is going to uh, what I call put up an ugly face in many many forms so how do we really uh, uh, what I call make people understand that this is an important thing to really move forward with.
1: Yeah, you know, I I studied physics, uh, um, uh, Amit. I I didn't do economics, um, and I had a desire to do economics, but I was told in the 1960s or late 50s when I went into college that physics was the important thing to do. And by the way, physics was a more difficult course to get into in India in the 1950s. Economics was not that valued. (coughs) Physics would be science, you'd be contributing to India's um scientific growth uh, so i did that and fortunately i did not go to economics because if i had then today i'd have to unlearn all that i learned but i have been studying economics for the last 15-20 years and i'm learning the new economics and i'm making this point to say paradigms i studied physics and uh, thomas Kuhn's book about uh, the structure of scientific revolutions which is now being cited by economists and others is the point that paradigms are very hard to change and what is a paradigm a paradigm is a school of thought in which many people are vested they are vested because they are admired for being the 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 priest high priest of that school of thought the gurus who teach that th- those thoughts they are people who gain from monetarily supporting that school of thought yeah. being supported by that school of thought so this is what paradigms are. It's a social and economic and uh, idea system which creates a world in which some people benefit because they are the high priests, like I said, and the people most vested in that paradigm. Therefore, when you want to change a paradigm, the resistance to change it is very high. It comes from all the people who are the gainers from it. It will definitely come like uh, Kuhn was talking in the pure physical sciences. There wasn't any economics and that much wealth associated that the people who are vested in an idea will resist any evidence, accepting any evidence which will change that paradigm. And so, as you do know, the Copernicus who said that we are not the center of the world, the earth is not the center of the universe, uh, had to just keep quiet because everything was, God has made man in God's image. We are in charge of the world. And it was man also, not woman. So anyone who contested or any woman who contested the idea that men uh, uh, should not be the only persons on top was uh, just suppressed and you could lose your life, as Copernicus found. So it was all after his death and then Galileo, of course, had trouble when he went on with that idea. And so Kuhn has pointed out how through history, even in physical sciences, paradigms are very hard to change. And when you come to economic sciences, where people actually have wealth, that is associated with that paradigm. This is why I come to capitalism. It's not just the econ- the ideology which uh, m- many people and uh, of course the big guru of the uh, this ideology that you know get government out of the way and let business be completely free to make more money, uh, Milton Friedman, this is 1970s. So you get an ideology also. So we've had a tough time the last uh, 20 or uh, since uh, the last 30 years after 1991 where there was a, a ideology of economics, which had become very strong about, you know, unregulated free markets and the business should be free, um, as well as the money that was in the hands of capitalist people and large corporations who liked that economics ideology. So these two together have made it very difficult for new ideas to be heard. And now you pointed out rightly that Amartya Sen, and Stiglitz later, Just two, and there are many others, you know them, because we talked about them, Danny Rodericks and others more recently, have been saying, look, let's go back to fundamentals. What is the point of an economy? The point of an economy is not just to increase its own size. The point of an economy is to make life easier for everybody. So talk about ease of living, and not just ease of doing business from a capitalist perspective. And the struggle to get ease of living indicators onto the measurements, in here in India has been very high and you know this too. And because when you say that, you say, oh, you're being a socialist, you're talking about the ease of living of poor people. But make it easy for investors, man. And then they will be looked after somehow sometime by some trickle down later.
0: Uh, in fact, Mr. mehra you, you'll be happy to note that we have created an ease of living index, which should be out sometime very soon uh, for the government. So uh, I can't share it here, but then there is something very powerful that we've created using the metric, uh, yes. as you are suggesting, but then, uh, coming back to um, the conversation you say like there is always that resistance to change uh, that you can actually have either from an ideology point of view or how howsoever you stall it but now the challenge for us is going to be that we have to move forward change that very thinking really mo- uh, move forward to the world because what you're hinting at in terms of say inequality there is that whole wealth inequality that you're talking about you're talking about social inequality in many ways in terms of wealth education uh, what, uh, whatever be the parameters we talk about. Um, but when you talk about that startling wealth disparity that actually exists, top 10 families controlling wealthy you know, 300 million people, or whatever be the number, they are very, very worrying. Uh, how do you think it can actually cause some sets of problems for us in the future, or how, how do we really set it right? It, it yeah. can't be a simple solution. Yeah, uh, I'm
1: going to delve a little more into thought. Hmm? into to ideas, and then talk about uh, the reality of how the vested interests uh, can be um, uh, um, sort of pressed to to let go a bit and change their ideas, because they have the power right now, okay? So let's go to thoughts. There are two big forces that have been shaping the world in the last uh, 100 years. One of them is a sort of an unbridled capitalism, and we've talked about it, and it has really made, yes, GDPs grow, it has made the stock market really boom. It has made some people very, very wealthy in, in, in the world. So that's a force that has changed the world. The other is democracy. The idea that people have rights, yeah? whether they're poor or rich or black or white or men or women, they have equal rights. Now, this idea is not an idea which is 1000 years old, nor 500 years old. This idea has gradually been creeping onto us yes, for the last 300 years. And we discover new rights. Um, In the last 100 years, the rights of women, which previously, they weren't given the same rights as men, but the feminine rights has come up. The rights of Dalits was in our constitution, where we never thought that those people deserve the same rights as others. The rights of blacks in the US, they might have been given them very recently, actually. It was not 300, 400 years ago, within the last 100 years. And even then, they haven't got full rights. They are treated as, equal citizens of societies and that comes to that we are recognizing that there are many people that live with us, who are not equal to us in our minds they're not equal to us, Now, what are the two principles. The principle of capitalism good governance and capitalism is based on the principle of property rights, if you have $100 in something and someone else has $1 in that thing you have a hundred votes, it's fair. I mean, you got more in it, right? In democracy, if you have one beating heart, you have an equal right as another person with a beating heart, whether the other person with a beating heart has $10 billion and you have zero. There are two contradictory principles of governance. Now, if you take institutions which are designed on the principle of property rights as the capitalist institutions, and plug them into a system which is trying to design itself on the principle of human rights, right? Equal rights for every human being, you get a blow up. It's like connecting an appliance designed for AC current into a socket which is providing DC current. There's going to be a blow up. So there's become a clash between the principles of capitalism and the principles of democracy. This is the big conflict of this century and human beings, we have to develop institutions which meet our aspirations and our aspirations are for giving freedom to people to with their own sweat and blood gain wealth for themselves, as well as equal rights, even if they have no wealth in the governance of a society. So I come back to the definition of democracy and I will come to Gandhiji, please, if you don't mind my because I feel he's taught us a lot and we must remember that. So, the principle democracy says a government of the people, for the people, by the people. Now, a government of the people, we want strong governments of the people because they'll create uh, law and order and security for everybody. And the Chinese communist government is a government of the people. And so is every democratic government supposed to be governing the people, of the people. But it should be for the people too. A benign dictatorship means that I look after all the people, I'm a government for the people, like the Chinese communists say, we do look after everybody, but it's not a government by the people. The people themselves are not taking all the decisions. And the real democracy is when people are taking the decisions that affect their lives. So here also in India, we have elections by people every five years, but in the decisions that affect their lives, on the ground, wherever they are, in their villages, and the cities, we still don't have governance in the villages, of the people, for the people, by the people, nor in the cities. We've got it as a theory up there, but we haven't put it down to people really having a say in what's happening in the world around them. And, and somehow, if I could just be well, not political-like, but in the Present farm issue, I mean, there is a whole thing about whether the agriculture policies are the right ones or the wrong ones. But I think the issue also is that people say we should have a say at least in what the policies are. And if you created institutions through which we are supposed to have a say, if they haven't had a say also, then we are worried about this. Where is democracy? We may be growing our economy by these reforms, but are we strengthening or weakening our democracy? So democracy has to be reformed or at least the idea of democracy in our constitution as well as in the US constitution, it has to be applied on the ground effectively. But let me apply the same principle to capitalism also. We do want businesses which are for the people, meaning they care for the people, they produce good products for the people at fair prices, make them available to the people. These are businesses for the people and every business better be for the people or won't grow its own revenues and incomes, care for your customers. And businesses can be also for the people when they say okay, um, we are going to be doing some CSR work for them and so on, right? So these are businesses, but then unless the business is being done by the people and they earn incomes, incomes, the business can't sell them anything. So this is the dilemma the world is coming to. We need much more engagement of people in the business. It can't be just returns to capital. People only sometimes have certain blood and hands and by applying them, They should get incomes. they should be part of the creation of the wealth in the business. So employment creation is required, income creation at the bottom is required by this principle, which is for the economic sake, which is businesses by the people too. But I come to the last one, which is businesses of the people. Now business of the people, as Mahatma Gandhi said, look, let the people in the villages use their own little machinery which they own and their own skills. And they must keep improving that and produce something for others. And others using their own skills and machinery if they have or no machinery if they don't have one, producing for each other. Now this is an economy, this was Adam Smith's idea anyway, about the butcher and the baker and the candlestick maker. We got to go back to the fundamentals. Gandhiji was a capitalist, but he foresaw a country. He wanted a country in which they were going to be, he didn't think of 1.2 billion people, but every Indian let's say today 1.2 billion Democrats, and at least 500 million of those are capitalists. They own their share in the business. They own their business. So this model requires much greater dispersal about the ownership of productive assets, either as a prime principal owner yourself, or through stock ownership of the company in which you work. So these models of cooperative enterprises, farmer-producer societies, Amul, great example, Seva, another good example. In India, I'm saying and there are many across the world too. In principle, these are businesses of the people being done by the people and for the people, hmm? okay? So keep staying with this. We need constructs of business which are architecturally for, by and off. And we need constructs of democratic institutions, which are for, by, and off also. And there we reconcile the principles of one dollar, one vote, and one heart, one vote.
0: Mr. Mayra, this is so fascinating as to how you're explaining it. Uh, But at the crux of the whole thing, like when you talk about, say, a democratic institution, uh, you're fundamentally saying is that there has to be that devolution of power. Uh, yes. which needs yes. to go to the villages or yes. the districts or the states or the cities or whatever. Uh, somehow, the union government has actually been far more proactive in terms of giving power to the states. But it's the states which have not been able to, what I call give power away to its cities or its uh, villages. So do, do you feel I'm, I'm making a right judge? You're absolutely right. No, no, you're absolutely
1: right. You're absolutely right. A- Amit, and um, uh, I might say that, you know, you uh, uh, allowed me to, to uh, listen into the evaluation of the aspirational districts program which niti aayog has uh, has and you have been uh, i think an architect of uh, the, the initiative of niti aayog in that program anyway I, I listened to that discussion that's the right spirit look we need as you found there that the people in those districts they have their own unique needs all those 108 districts are not the same so if you talk about For the next five years, what should be on your scorecard? They cannot be the same things that are on the scorecards of districts, say in Kerala or the district in, if there's any aspirational district in Kerala, somewhere in the south, let's say, or a district in Himachal on the mountains or somewhere else. They would have to be dealing with their realities as they are, as they are. And so therefore from this point, which is a scientific point I'm saying, you would have to let the local people, the local stakeholders determine what is The measurement of their progress, and then to together find solutions to achieve that outcome. And what is the government's role in this, the government's role in this has to support to support local initiatives to take their own course, so long as within themselves, they are being democratic, do not allow some power within to overpower others. Okay. And this is, again, Gandhiji's is, everyone must respect everybody. We are all in it with Dalit or Brahmin or uh, the Bania or the farmer. You're all together. Hmm? Govern yourself together. And we know this can be done because there are good models. And this is happening in Sweden. Lina Ostrom taught us it could, was happening in India also. She found these models. So we look at these. And in the aspirational Districts program, as I said, you're coming to the same point that we have to apply this way of governing. And what the layer above must do is to support the local people to build that capacity, not to interfere with them and say, no, we know better than you, or I've got a lot of money if you were to do just this. And this is where the incapacity starts to come. The people down there do need the money of your scheme because they don't have the money, but then they start doing only that one thing because you insist that that is the only thing that is most important to be done. And you completely may destroy the local system. And this is what is happening, Amit, if I might say, looking around the world. I'm part of the G20 initiatives and the T20 initiatives, that to get the SDGs going, and there are 17 of them, and they cover all the various environmental matters and uh, social and economic matters, inequity included and public health and all the rest of it in there. There's so many things to be done. And none of these things can be done the same way everywhere in the world. and all of these things need to be done together. As we said before, you can't just say, first I'll grow the economy, then I'll worry about the environment, because by that time there'll be no environment to support your economy thereafter. So you've got to do all these complex things together. And the only way to do it is to have local system solutions where you're applying yourself to the right priorities in that place. If every part of the world was environmentally sustainable, was inclusive in its growth, and was getting sufficient economic resources by its growth. To growth the world has met all the SDGs. So change your model of governance. Local system solutions developed by communities will help the whole world to achieve the SDGs. So I'm going to come back to the states hmm, and ourselves where you asked this question. So there's where the tangle comes, I find, you see. We've got one model which we have constructed for the states to govern themselves. By the way, it's the same model that we use at the center to govern the complex system. And they would also have to let go power to the local communities within themselves. So there's a power devolution that is required. Now you may be very enlightened sitting here in the center, but don't think that other people are going to give up their power just like that. This is the problem with the capitalist institutions also. You might say, you know, please start worrying about the environment and inclusion and paying higher wages and don't fire people just when your profits are going down because they need incomes much more than you need profits. Do you think capitalists are complying with you, even at the center? But there's power there. And they want to maintain their positions and the resources that they have. So this is a power change situation. This would require a movement. And the movement is a movement of ideas supported by many movements in society. Many, many... Centers of action of change, which was Gandhiji's idea how we got freedom. It was not one march. There were many marches, many movements, many passive resistances. But all subscribing to that idea, we want to govern ourselves. Go away. You're smarter than us. You're giving law and order and you know, maintaining that for us. But go away. <laughs> mm-hmm. Let us make our own mess, as Gandhiji told Churchill. When Churchill said, you people will make a mess, he says, "But well, that's all right. It'll be our mess at least. And not the mess that you caused us so same thing please allow the states to make their mess i'm coming to that and we start judging states to say but they are doing things which they think are right to do and they're not complying with our great vision of how india is going to grow i have been in the planning commission five years and yes this was the whole challenge that the chief ministers gave to us they came every year to present their plans for the states. And we talked down to them and said, you know, we've got the best advice from World Bank and stuff, and you should do this. And a, Chief Minister in Megalia says, but you know, my little king, place there is like this, and I've got my own model, which we discovered, which is a very good one, a sort of valley-based development system. We said, oh, that's going backwards, like, you know, connect with the global economy. So we go down to them. And I would say, our, our present prime minister was very bold enough to say, it. he says, you know, you don't know but the situation of Gujarat is different to the situation of Punjab. It's quite different to the situation of Meghalaya. So please let your chief ministers choose what they do. And don't make these central schemes and give us these central ideas. What you must do is trust us and help us to do what we want to do. Don't tell us what we should do. And in that, our challenge is surely that we are governing each of us very complex systems of you know, 30, 40, 200 million people in the case of UP. How are complex systems governed? You don't seem to know, frankly, so don't try to teach us that. We are wanting to learn this. So can we all learn together? Let us learn. And some of us might learn some things faster than others as states. So let us compare notes. And this is why I like what Yog is doing, that you're ranking the states in terms of various things, not for the sake of awarding them, but for them to be spurred, to say, how come another state within India, which is also in an equally poor country like mine is, Uh, like that uh, the state is asking the question is, what can I learn, what can we learn from each other? Those lateral processes that need to be built. People supporting each other, learning from each other, not being told from the top and being judged from the top and being ranked by the top and awarded by the top. Democracy cannot be run by vertical processes. Democracy is lateral, where people respect each other and create communities of respect and trust.
0: So... Mr. Mayra, this is, again, very fascinating in terms of like how you're saying as to how the structure of the audience should happen. And as you invoke the Mahatma, uh, and when you invoke the Mahatma Gandhi, uh, you, you, uh, I would like to ask a question from an economic standpoint. You've said, of course, there has to be, probably what you're saying is that there, ha- there have to be village-level enterprises. The moment you say that there has to be a network or you, it has to be like a ramul or it has to be a cooperative unit. So what we are saying is that we need to get localized in terms of production processes and things. How do we really push that forward? Because that's something that we have been talking about for ages. In fact, Mahatma Gandhi mm. talked about it in in the 1940s itself. And we have somehow not understood, Like, because if you really look at the history of India, if, if at any point in time, you want to say that India was 25% of the world GDP. It actually had that 25% GDP when you were actually having a very strong local economies. Uh, so how did we really build those local economies is a question. And this is a question which is pertinent for any country in the world, for that matter.
1: That's right. So we come to that thesis like uh, one is uh, you might say it's a normative uh, a matter about the belief in all human beings are equal. So I do want every human being to be able to stand up on her own feet or his own feet, earn if she needs to or he needs to uh, fairly. Hmm? I need that. I'm saying that's a normative, a democratic idea. But I'm talking in terms of an economy. If Every person had more incomes. Then there's more market for others to sell to. So for that reason also, I do want to grow the incomes of many more people than presently. If you have only a few people with a lot of wealth, and the wealth is in the form of uh, you know stocks and shares, um, their businesses, who will they sell to? Who's going to have the income to buy their stuff? They no incomes, yeah. So your wealth won't grow any further also. That's the collapse of uh, capitalism and the collapse of of economies. So we come to, I want uh, uh, small enterprises because people initially uh, can't be owning a large enterprise. We keep saying stand up, up, startup, don't be a job seeker, be a job creator, which is our slogan here in India. So we're talking about small enterprises, but we do know that a small enterprise doesn't have all the wherewithal that it may need to be able to access markets, to get technology and so on. So it would need to be part of larger networks in which other people have the other resources. I'm going back to Adam Smith's idea. I mean, some person has this, the other person has that. If you combine the things together, you've got a good network economy of all self-reliant individuals or businesses within it. So think of networks, clusters in which there's diversity. Now we think of clusters of you know 20 enterprises, all the same, all having the same resources owned by individuals, which is very good, but then they don't have the requisite diversity of the other resources required to make the economy richer. So we need clusters in which there's diversity of enterprises, and these were the best clusters. And you know from economic history, when you talk about where clusters have been strong in Taiwan or in Italy in the earlier days, it was not all were doing not just one thing. There were many doing that one thing, but around them, there were many providers of the things that they needed and then went further and further. So it made a very rich ecosystem. So this was Gandhiji's idea too, and Adam Smith's idea I'm saying, but well, this is an economic idea. So If you take this as a model, this is what I want to create. Then I come to, I'm not looking for creating large enterprises in which there are 10,000 people doing the same thing. This model of large factories, economy of scale, I want to shift it to economies of scope. In a system which has scope, there's a greater variety of things. But this is an economic idea, by the way, and this is an idea from nature. Nature is able to self-evolve, adapt, evolve. It's very resilient because it maintains a variety of things together. If you make monocultures, as you know, it's not able to, that place is not able to sustain itself. Any um, population which reduces diversity, its genes become weaker. We must maintain diversity in the economic system and diversity in the social system. And for that, that diversity must be maintained, I'm saying, in the social system with respect for people because they are different. Respect them because they are different. They are valuable because they are different, not they are bad because they're different. Now, this idea in the social side, I'm saying in the economic side, we tend to look down on small enterprises. Oh, they're weak. They can't be productive. Let's have big enterprise. We today want to immediately sort of dismiss our informal enterprise and say, let's have formal enterprises. You can't get from here to there. And by the way, formal enterprises, once again, there's a survey in one of our national papers uh, today or yesterday showed that the formal enterprises in India have reduced formal employment much more during COVID. And they had been doing it previously. So A, they've reduced employment and they've reduced within the remaining employment, the persons who got formal contractual employment in those enterprises. So the world is getting informalized. So why are we trying to impose a model of creating large factories, giving incentives to people to make a lot of investment in those large factories? How many jobs would they create per unit of capital? Okay. attract a lot of capital and declare oh look how many people have sworn to invest so much capital but what at the end of the day would be the number of people whose incomes have been increased so we must be measuring in our case how much jobs capital creates we are not scarce of people we are scarce of capital so measuring productivity in terms of how much can one person produce is not measuring the quality of the growth of the society properly. I must measure how much is in terms of inclusion of people, incomes of people, one unit of capital producing. Coming back to again, how economists measure productivity. Please don't measure it at this stage of our development in terms of output per person. Measure it in terms of output per unit of capital. And that output, again, the measures that we talked about we want that output to have a broad range of measures, economic growth per unit of capital, inclusion and incomes of people per unit of capital, and environmental improvement per unit of capital invested, which is the opposite of what businesses do. They treat society and the environment as externalities. Okay? You use those resources, coming back to capitalism, you use these external resources, convert them into your capital, right? So those are externalities to be taken care of governments and society, not by business.
0: Mr. Mehra, there can be a rebuttal uh, on this uh, thing and uh, just one of the issues that when you are talking about the economies of scope vis-a-vis economies of scale. So, economies of scale does help us in bringing costs down together, or whatever. So, will economies of scope be something which actually is going to be anti-consumer, or is it actually going to hurt the consumers? No, or there is. is a there is a uh, what I call possibility of uh, what I call overcoming this aspect.
1: Two things: economy of scale. Look, I am a business person, and I have to build large factories when I was at Tata for twenty-five years, and then to consult with the largest companies in the world. And so, these questions always came for their strategy. Economy of scale. It says that if you do one thing on a large scale, it's the same standard thing, Henry Ford's idea, let's say, of producing a car and every car's color should be black, then you do get unit cost reduced. But provided your factory is used consistently, its utilization is high. And provided people want that same thing, yeah? The standard thing that you're producing. This leads to the other side that if people don't have incomes to buy all that you're producing, you're not going to get economies of scale even though you devised a factory which theoretically will have economies of scale. We've suffered this in India when we had the ultra mega power plants. The whole idea was that we will have these huge power plants, right, get a lot of land for them and the huge size plants because we want to reduce the unit cost of power when it's produced. And they, most of them have gone pretty bad why? Firstly, in the process of trying to get all that land and get all that capital, it takes a while and there's a lot of hang-ups in, in doing that. Secondly, they've got to keep being evacuated and the evacuation process, there are a lot of tangles on the other side. So actually the more resilient systems and this I'm talking from economics. So this was a famous Harvard Business Review article in the 1970s, which I happened to read when I was with Tata's, And we began to apply it to our factories in India. The economy of scope, vis- vis-a-vis economy of scale. Economies of scope create more resilience, and because what I'm pointing back into economics, they create more incomes for people, they will enable those factories which have scale to keep growing and not go fut. We keep thinking about consumer welfare, but the consumer can be a consumer only if the consumer's got an income. We must think of producers' welfare also. Yeah. And this is where the whole point comes, that please look at, like you talked of the reforms, the first 1991 reforms were easily sold into the country because we sold the benefits to people as consumers. You'd be able to get a variety of cars, you'd be able to get a variety of phones, branded clothes and so on. And consumers as citizens would love that. But after some time, consumers say to buy that stuff, where's my income? And this is where India's come to. We've had a lot of support for these reforms, as long as people were having enough income to keep buying the new goodies that were being offered to them. But of late, they don't have enough incomes because they're not earning enough. And the few people who has incomes and their wealth is growing, they're affording even greater things. I mean, the houses are bigger, their cars that they're getting are fancier, the holidays they're taking are better. So this is where the disparities come by pursuing this model that Look after only consumer welfare, and don't worry about the citizen as a producer. We have to think of citizens as earners and producers first.
0: Yeah. So, the manifesto, if I hazard saying that, what what is suggesting is like a manifesto of sorts, which is what, which can actually reform uh, the democratic process, can actually reform capitalism. Uh, but now, th- the question that does arise in my mind is that. How, how do you think corporate world is going to be ready for this? There is,
1: there are, there are, there are, and I, I would, I, I, you asked this question earlier, and I sort of went on to the broader picture again, which I, I think is always necessary to keep in mind. But let's come to business particularly, okay? Particularly now, the I told you the economic paradigm, how it has been shifting um, um, since the nineteen sixties and seventies, uh, after nineteen seventies, let me say, and then how the business of business must be business began to became the sort of the mantra and to do that so the business people are producing value for society please we have created an institution called the limited liability corporation we've created it society has created a limited liability corporation which has liabilities to the extent only of the extent of the capital invested in them you don't have liabilities beyond that you can't be charged for more than that okay we've created it and this vehicle has benefited society greatly Now, so I asked I remember when I was in the planning commission and people were asking me the question that you asked me and these were the NGOs because I was supposed to look after industry and I'm seen as a capitalist right Because I had BCG uh, formally and so on and said uh, look you got to get rid of these capitalists, these business enterprises and have you know, what they thought of as socialist enterprises. And I asked them this question, I said, tell me this. And there was, a, it was 300 people in the Taj Hotel and they were all from the social side, <laughs> side uh, NGOs and so on. How many of you have any investments in mutual funds? And this crowd in Delhi, certainly all of them had, they all put up their hands. How many of you want your mutual funds values to increase? all the hands up. I said, Who do you think is making that happen? These are limited liability corporations, you are charging people to do this for you. So if you wish to suddenly destroy those people, remove them, you are going to go FUT. Things you're relying on will not happen. So this is going to be a cooperative enterprise you're going to have to change some of your ideas, and they're going to have to change some of their ideas. And in a system, all these institutions cannot change. None of them can change by themselves. Like in a human body, you can't just grow the heart to a certain size. Your liver and your lungs are not going to grow. Similarly, different systems in the body must grow together. And so in in an economy or a society, different institutions, different subsystems, of the larger system must change and evolve together. So the conversation between the different sectors, the government, the civil society, as well as the the, the business side, must together say, what is our aspiration? And what are each of us going to do? And we all have going to have to let go of something. We can't keep saying the other side is the problem only. We are perfectly all right. Even if we're perfectly all right, we still will have to change something because the other side cannot exist in a new form, unless I change my form to support it. So, this model of change, which is a collaborative process of change, is essential to introduce. And in this, let me come back to business. There have been many business people who have been wanting to do this in my history with Carters and thereafter with BCG. And the books you talked about transforming capitalism were about this. Look, telling the business people, don't keep blaming the civil society. There's something that you can do as leaders. You must take the first step. And there were two steps that I suggested. And I will suggest again, one is use your own scorecard, make your own scorecard a more balanced scorecard. And I was very pleased to hear at the uh, uh, World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab and Anand Mahindra, one of our leaders give his speech today or yesterday about the new ESG measures. And you'll have Mark Kramer and others, I'm sure on your show later. And you know, this is business has to do it voluntarily. And some businesses are, you've got to make that a movement. We must all adopt and hold ourselves up to be measured by a larger set of measures and not just by our growth of revenues and profits and our stock market prices. Let's take it upon ourselves. The second is, I mentioned that already, if we can make our own enterprises more democratic, let's please have a greater say in the governance of our enterprises by our workers, by our customers, by the communities around ourselves. They don't need to own it, but let's have them say to us what we should be doing, which would be good for them also. And you know, these two things go together. The metric, the scorecard, if it's a balanced one is going to be providing information to those people. Then we must listen to those people, what they criticize us about that. Just like we do on a to stockhold, the stockholders, yeah. And it's required by law that you'll announce your results regularly and they are allowed to ask you questions and so So let's open a broader set of stock, uh, uh, broader scorecard, in which other stakeholders can then question our reports and we get feedback and we make a more resilient and a more responsible business enterprise.
0: Mr. Mayra, you know, like what you're really saying is that we have to go through or work through a new ethic of how really things need to be seen. Um, But my last question towards this conversation, which is a fairly heavy one that way, picking up from the SDGs, there is an... It is suspected that SDGs will actually get achieved in 2094, the way we are actually going forward right now. That is one. COVID has actually exposed a lot of issues that we see. And as to your manifesto that you're suggesting, it's very powerful from how you really reform capitalism to how you really reform democracy. Where do you think, or how fast do you think we need to move forward to really solve the world, given given the situation and the mess we are in from, not achieving sdgs the global crisis uh, reforming the capitalism reforming governance what is the way forward how quickly can we do it or else if we don't do it uh, how quickly will we fall you know uh, these
1: numbers are about that uh, you are saying is 2093 and some others some years ago were saying is 2070 so it comes like this you are making a projection of how fast you can get from here to there hmm? So I, let me give you a, a, a nice analogy. So if someone asks me that, look, how long is it going to take me to go from here to, to, to Karnal? And if he's on a bullock cart, I'll say, well, it might take you two days. Now, but if you could get yourself into a nice fancy car, you probably could get there in, in an hour and a half. You got to change the vehicle. And this is where institutions come. And institutions are sets of ideas as well as structures associated with those ideas. The sooner we transform the ideas that we are using to make progress, the faster we are going to get there. So if you change the vehicle, and if I'm saying, if we apply these ideas that we just talked about, I mean, and you to then make a projection scenario, this is what you know, scenarios are. Then I can assure you, because I've done this exercise on the back of an envelope and otherwise, we could probably achieve the SDGs in about 2040 and not 2093, okay? Because I'm making some assumptions also about how fast the change into the new vehicles of devolved networked enterprises is going to be. Enterprises run by people who have the ethic that I'm here to help everyone. I'm born as a human being, to nurture others and to nurture nature. I'm not born as a human being to grab everything and to make myself uh, the chief and myself the richest person. So these are the spiritual and ethical ideas. And they then inform these models of institutions that we have been discussing. And the sooner we do this, we won't get it completely right, the first time it'll evolve. But the sooner we start going down that path, more of us going down that path, the shorter the time it's going to take us to save humanity at the end. Because as you pointed out, we might all die long before (laughs) those years because we don't know the uncertainties in all this, you see.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so Mr. Mayra, this has just been such a fascinating uh, conversation and we've moved from the whole idea of reforming the whole structure of capitalism to understanding how governance needs to actually happen. And I strongly believe after this conversation that. If we really get our act together and if we are able to really put these ideas into action from either getting the right metric to really the right governance structure and really reforming the capitalistic world, we, m- we might actually make a world a better living place by 2040, as you suggest. And I hope people are listening and they're implementing as to what you're suggesting. Uh, I think this has just been a fascinating interaction. I could have gone on for hours with you, uh, but uh, and, and I would like to continue this conversation uh, the next time. But thanks a lot. Uh, pleasure having you with us. It has just been an honor interacting with you. Thank you, Mr. Maida.
1: I Amit, mean, thank you so much. Thank
0: you. Thank you. so kind. Bye-bye. Bye. Folks, this is just a pleasure having Mr. Mayra with us. See you next week. And we are going to actually have rishikeshakrishnan who is going to be interacting with us on innovation. Thank you.